This is The New Right, a podcast for the lost arts, reclaiming the literary holy land from the heathen. I'm Matt Pegas. And this is Dan Baltic. And we are here today with a good friend of mine, a fellow podcaster, uh, Robert Stark, uh, who I think a lot of our audience is probably familiar with. Certainly anyone who follows me knows Robert. We've sort of been connected at the hip um, since I first came online, uh, in like the beginning, it's about four, actually, my gosh, it could almost be to the day, about a four year anniversary of me, um, sort of coming online into this general sphere of the internet. I would say four years since I've gotten red pilled, but maybe that's silly. Put it this way. Four years ago, I discovered Robert's podcast and that's how I got into all of this. Um, you know, Robert has been a, uh, a longtime friend of mine. I kind of came up as a co-host on his podcast long before there was this podcast, and I still co-host on Robert's podcast. Um, Robert really uh, introduced me to a lot of people on this corner of the internet, and, and even if not actually introduced me as like an online friend, uh, he introduced to me, me to a lot of ideas, both you know, in my correspondence with Robert online, but also, and maybe first and foremost through his podcast, which for those who don't know, is called The Stark Truth. Um, you can find it at Stark Truth, Stark Truth Radio. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, Robert Stark, Stark Truth Radio.com. And, uh, yeah, this is, we're kind of doing like a simul, a simulcast. So I've never been on Matt's new podcast, but, uh, yeah, this will be a simulcast. And then also, Matt, do you want to introduce your host? Uh, Dan Baltic, because oh, uh, I've never sure. had a so lot of yeah. This is this is this is the new right, but it is also the stark truth. This is a simulcast, kind of the way Dan and I have done with uh, last things recently. Um, so for members of Robert's audience who don't know Dan, um, Dan is my co-host on my new podcast, New Right. Um, co-host slash he it was it was his. You know, slash creator, um, Dan and I came oh, up with it. Oh, it was both of us, Matt. <laughs> I, um, maybe I came up with the title, but, I mean, it was our baby to begin with. So, like, yeah. I mean, I think we were really working on New Right Hand in Glove from the very beginning. Right. And, indeed, with you doing all the audio, uh, I wouldn't have a podcast without you. So. <laughs> <laughs> and also, Matt, do you want to introduce uh, your podcast? I guess sure, before we get sure. to... Paper Fornia. Do you want to introduce 
the premise of New Right. Yeah, uh, very briefly. So New Right is um, I already we gave our little cryptic uh, lead-in podcast for the Lost Arts reclaiming the literary holy land from the heathen. But but in, in layman's terms, it is a uh, podcast about books, and it's a podcast about literature, and it's a podcast about so-called dissident, or as our friend Manuel Marrero prefers to call it, countercultural uh, literature. Um, yeah, it's it's a literary podcast for people who don't fit the traditional mold that you'd find in uh, you know the traditional publishing world, uh, included but definitely not limited to um, people with views of a you know dissident right sort of persuasion or or uh as you would say on your podcast robert people with sort of radical center or dissident center or perhaps even alt center type view you know it's 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 not a right-wing podcast per se but it's it's for people it's for outsider lit or countercultural lit people who write books um that uh whether it be for political reasons or just personality reasons um you know would not be able to get them published or talked about um through traditional avenues and um, you know as i said i came up through your podcast robert uh, and you, you know you and your podcast have been a huge part of my online existence and you know new right is um yeah it's pretty different than than star truth radio for sure but at the same time you know it's we're, we're i think you know it's it's different pieces of the same pie so to speak where it's this for lack of a better term you know dissident sphere um, just as you know, Robert, you you've done interviews going on ten or fifteen years now uh, with people from across the political spectrum who couldn't find a voice, um, you know, in mainstream, uh, you know, media, shall we say? Um, you know, new right is basically that as applied to literature. I think is you know part of the connection here. It's for fellow travelers. Yeah. So I guess I'll introduce the book then. Uh, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. Vaporfornia is uh, it is relevant to a lot of the themes of my Substack article, but it is, to clarify, it is the sequel to my first novel, Journey to Vapor Island, so my second book as an author, and it's a surreal, dark comedy, coming-of-age story set in California. Just to give the kind of the brief intro, the protagonist graduates from high school and then dealing with his high school trauma and hopes for life, but it's also set in the aftermath of the massacre Mm -hmm. and the news coverage of that from the first book journey to vapor island so he does cross paths with the original anti-hero and from the first book journey to vapor island and the other characters from the book as well and it's kind of revealed that's revealed like layers like peeling Mm -hmm. an onion and then there's also like the first novel many references that satirize online subcultures meme culture memes and uh dissident political spheres uh I'm not sure if uh, Dan. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the first book, but Matt, for sure. you, I think Somewhat you have yes. read *Journey to Vapor Island*. So, if you want to contrast, if you want to contrast *Vaporfornia* and how they relate, and your comparisons to the plot for and the sure. subject matter. So, um, again, not to just keep in this mode, or I keep getting meta and talking about my friendship with you, Robert. But yeah, *Journey to Vapor Island* is a book that I think that had just come out around the time that we first met online so there was a lot of buzz surrounding it um most of it from my perspective was positive um it's it's a hilarious book uh, vaporfornia the new one and journey to vapor island both are very funny of course there 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 have been naysayers to both books uh, accusing them of degeneracy which i guess we'll get to later but suffice it to say there was a lot of buzz about this journey to vapor island book uh when i first uh came on to the star truth and um yeah i mean journey to vapor island is great as you say it's 
it's really you could say it's like a frog twitter or uh you know like a frog twitter classic i think gio panicietti was saying i never knew this but he was saying that it became a meme on, on was it like 8chan uh, or maybe, or maybe something like that. I, I have no lit. idea i mean these aren't really spheres that i uh cross paths with too much but you know regardless of, and, and the, the, the story with gio is that um, he is now a fan of yours, Robert, and a fan of the book and a fan of your art, but he was originally one of these people who was saying, you know, it was degenerate, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but regardless of what people were saying about it, the fact of the matter is, it, you know, it was laid in this meme culture. It was, um, you know, I feel like now, and we kind of covered on New Right, there's a lot of people. Well, it's, was, it captures right. the zeitgeist right, of the zeitgeist. Yeah. And this book captures yeah, the current yeah, for zeitgeist. Sure. So, so during the Vapor Island very much captures that like kind of pre-Trump, Trumpian moment. Um, the original cover had Pepe's on it. Um, it was, uh, yeah, very much of that zeitgeist. And what I was going to say was, at that time, you know, a lot of people publish novels now. Uh, a lot of people know who like Delicious Tacos is now and think of him as, you know, he, this guy with all these books. But in the context of late 2016, 2017, even early 2018, there wasn't really a lot of people publishing, uh, you know, literature like this. So it really kind of was it maybe ahead of its time because I think a lot more people, you know, try to get their work out there now. And yeah, again, regardless of what people may or may not have been saying it at the time, uh, it captured that zeitgeist really well. Uh, it is hilariously funny, um, and you know that that kind of thing making an impact the way that Journey to Vapor Island did. And look, it's it, you know we're, we're smallish Twitter accounts here. I'm not saying it is anything that the majority of people would be on their radar, but nevertheless, I think it did make a splash, and I think that kind of thing, you know, outlives. Uh, you know that that kind of thing make makes your work last. So I, I all that is to say, Journey to Vapor Island remains a a, a Twitter uh, classic. Um, but I also always say this, and I, I helped. You know, I I'm credited, I believe, as an editor on Vaporfornia, and I wrote the blurb. Like obviously, oh yeah, I, was cl- I clarify on Twitter if anyone finds anything about the book objectionable that the editor right, takes full yes, responsibility. Right, yes, if there's any obscenity trials uh, 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 um, based on uh, Vaporfornia, it is me who will be going to jail. Um, me paying the price, um, you know, because uh, <laughs> no, 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 uh, no good deed of helping Robert Stark out goes unpunished. I'm just kidding. But, um... I, uh, I like Vaporfornia more. I think that Journey to Vapor Island is a classic... Um, but, uh, but I think that Vaporfornia, as you've even said, Robert, uh, not that it's autobiographical per se, uh, but it is more personal. It's a little more, um, introspective in parts, especially perhaps the first half to three quarters of the novel. And, um, I think as funny as Journey to Vapor Island is, um, Vaporfornia kind of finds a balance of some of the sort of more cartoonish style of Journey to Vapor Island, but also I think becomes a lot more of a sort of personal, not memoir, but personal and emotional um, story that sort of like uh, my novel and, and sort of like some other, you know, classic. Yeah. So I think, uh, was it, it was Rich Huck on Twitter who described the first book as, he described it as having a fever dream and also, I think James O'Meara compared in a review to uh, William Rose. Mm. So both of them are very focused on how the protagonist perceives the world, and very focused. But the second book, it's more introspective. But you also feel 
Uh, both books are are fairly surreal. I, it's hard to because I'm speaking as the author. Like I'd rather hear someone else who's read it give their take, but it is more it's more intimate as far as feeling deeper in the characters, like inner dialogue and a subconscious. Yeah, I mean, I think I'll, I'll actually I'm really curious to let Dan comment because um I actually haven't talked to Dan that much about it since he read Vaporfornia, but um. Yeah, I just think that it's it speaks to, you know, Journey to Vapor Island, great book, made a splash, there's a lot of shock value to it, and I think you'd really honed your craft as a writer and been better able to sort of tap into that more personal level of writing. But in terms of the overall style, I mean, I don't know, Dan, what was uh, what was your general take if you had to make comps? So yeah, I would say it's kind of a uh, picaresque story of uh, this, you know, protagonist, Max von Mueller, who is um, embroiled in a world that is uh, very uh, unique, but reflects contemporary California and national politics. And he is on this kind of rollicking comic adventure. And I, if I had to give comparisons, I would say flavors of A Confederacy of Dunces, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I, I confess that I've never actually read Confederacies of Dunces, but I will actually will have to now, and I got that comparison with the first novel. So Dan, go ahead, besides Confederacy of Dunces, which other comparisons? So there's a, a novel, Lucky Jim, which is kind of also about a, a hapless protagonist who finds himself, in, in that case, he's embroiled in the world of uh, university politics in the 1950s. And uh, it's, it's a satire as, as well. I, I think, uh, you know, you probably would consider, I, I, I would consider Vaporfornia a bit of a satire. Mm. So it, it kind of, it's in that tradition of satires that are also kind of adventure stories that take you through, you know, different places and, and different, you know, environments and uh, reflect right. back on the the times and reflect cast a comic lens a, a satirical eye on the times in which we currently live right and, i'd actually um, never really had that thought about um robert's work but robert you do always say that you like to write novels and stories that you know they, they're never set in one location you go from place to place to place uh oh yeah that has to be uh I always bring this up, like, with movies, plays, literature, I always get bored if it's in one, everything is in one geographic location. The the constant movement, that does kind of, ref, I guess I don't want to say it's autobiographical, but I will say it does reflect my psychological instincts as I, as I crave, like, constant sense of motion. Then also, like, the physical graphic descriptions of the geographic locations. Yeah, well, you're you're a great lover of architecture and place, which we'll get into. And Vaporfornia basically uh, covers the, not not all of California, but but pretty much the gamut of of major California locations. Well, most of it, I'd say, yeah, I'd say not not all of California, but the most important, most important Uh, places. No no disrespect to, to, I guess, Northern California, but you take us from the Bay Area through um, the Central Valley. You actually dip into Nevada a little bit, Carson City and Reno, and then we go down to L.A., and there's a whole Hollywood um, kind of section that takes up the last bit of the book. Um, but I say all this to say, uh, and Journey to Vapor Island, too, you know, you have... you have um, a lot, That one is set, actually, on the East Coast. Yeah. Well, the thing is, the, I've never been to the East Coast, 
So that book was all from research and imagination. With California, I know a lot of these places pretty much like the right. back of my hand. So I could write from experience. And also, like we've taken a trip to the Bay Area, right. and you could probably see similarities of places that we've traveled to. And it is based on uh, like parts of it almost sound like a travel, like a travel, like yes. a short, like a travel story in sections. But yeah, that was that was different with the first book, purely from imagination. But yeah, it is, it is very much a book about yeah. about California. And I would actually estimate that uh, I'm sure there's may maybe like been some kind of woke novels about this, but I would say that it's groundbreaking as far as being the first fiction novel that really dives deep into California oh, social yeah. political demo- demographics. We'll, and we'll class get to dynamics. California in a second because it, it's it's hugely relevant and, um, and, and and you know as you said we have a lot of a lot of the places in the book are places that literally you and I Robert uh, have been together, uh, which is pretty cool. But um, the, the last thing I wanted to say about that is just on, on Dan's thought. You know, the, the, the notion of the satire, like the moving satire, um, that that is kind of like this weird niche genre. I'm not sure which examples you had in mind, Dan, but I think of even something like Voltaire's Candide to an extent. Oh, and, sure. Um, yeah. uh, definitely Gulliver's Travels, uh, which yeah. is actually the, the, the... Oh, yeah. Uh, the, I don't know if you've read that, Robert. I don't know if you've read that, Dan. Uh, but I actually wrote my... I'm familiar uh, with I mean, it. It also reminds me of, I think, I remember with my... My first book, I remember Brandon Adamson in his review, he described it as an adult, as like an adult mm-hmm. version of the Never Right, story. yeah, yeah. So there's that kind of fantastical element. And again, I don't, it's hard to almost put your finger on, but that, that, that sense of the story being in motion uh, and kind of going to different places and different places reflecting differently on society. It is kind of this interesting micro genre of um of satire and i I would say that that vaporfornia and journey to vapor island both really fit into that but um to to touch on the california angle um yeah no like uh vaporfornia naturally you know california is right in the title uh robert you are a lifelong california resident um my personal angle here is that i have lived in california since 2017 uh and not not only uh you know as i kind of said Earlier, has Robert really guided me, uh, you know, and initiated me <laughs> into a lot of these kind of online circles? A lot of uh, places in California, uh, very, very notable places, and even sort of on a smaller scale, places within LA. Because Robert, you did—I won't say where you live now if you don't want me to—but you, you know, you grew up in LA. Uh, basically, oh I'm- yeah. And also, I gotta—I gotta clarify—is with the barrier depictions are fairly accurate, and as kind of as an LA native, like viewing the Barrier as a place mm-hmm. where on vacation, the kid, the protagonist, he grows up in the Barrier, and those depictions are, are pretty, are pretty sure. accurate as it is. But with LA, I actually would say a lot of it is based upon fictional well, locations. Well, oh yeah, that is a, that's a good point. Um, and that kind of ties in a little bit to, to the different sections of the novel. I mean, you have the first half of it or so takes place in the Bay Area, moving to Modesto, California, and then Max, our protagonist, ends up in L.A. The L.A. part is very futuristic. Uh, it involves, um, and you know, we'll get into some of this later, but it, it, it involves uh, buildings created by the sort of uh, 
heroic figure in the novel, Roger Blackstone, there's this interesting, you know, it's an LA of the future, whereas the Bay Area sections and certainly Modesto are sort of um, those areas of the present. And that kind of ties into a change in tone that happens in the novel because um, the first the first half or so it is kind of this introspective, I won't call it an incel narrative per se, but it's this narrative about a kind of down on his luck protagonist who's kind of feeling the, the you know the weight of all these issues and social isolation and then the second half which we'll get into a bit more later but the second half there's this kind of explosion of um you know chaotic and crazy things that happen and that sort of ties into the more imaginative element hmm. oh yeah for sure and yeah like how california uh yeah a lot of allegories but uh the sense of place is important and also the how California can serve uh, as a symbol, as an allegory, uh, the lost California dream, mm -hmm. California as the simulation, as it is portrayed in Hollywood, social media, and VR, how, how, we're, how Californians are just avatars in this simulation, mm -hmm. and Vaporfornia as a parallel California that could exist on an alternative time dimension or an alternative timeline, and then, then sort of a call for Californians to kind of reclaim their lost their lost mm -hmm. destiny and demand the future that was stolen from them but vaporfornia it can be uh it can be a state of mind it can be uh it can be uh, an alternative california mm -hmm. that exists in uh theory it could be it could be yeah that's kind of like the term is open to interpretation and reference to the whole vapor there's a whole other allegory to the vapor as well, which is referenced in the first book. And then that's then obviously like the vaporwave right. genre. Well, I, on your, on the podcast you did with uh, Greg Johnson recently, um, he asked you what the vapor was. And I thought that was an interesting question. I and mean, you sort of answered it just now, but yeah, what in a nutshell, and I know that the answer is it's open for interpretation, but how would, how would you define uh, the notion of the vapor as a realm um, in, in, in the sort of mythology or, or in the world of your books. Yeah. Again, it's open to interpretation. So it could, it could be interpreted as another dimension and a supernatural component as a subconscious. Uh, it could symbolize like uh, lost futures, uh, the dreams and reality is like what we're missing out on. And uh, the kind of the VR, the VR angle and mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, a lot of different, uh, a lot of different, uh, a lot of different allegories, and then also, uh, I think someone uh, on on Twitter, I think, the, yeah, they are Portuguese, like they in the they didn't read the book, but they did say in re, in review uh, that it reminds them in a lot of the deeper meaning of the word. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce mm. it, sal saudade in, in Portuguese yeah. culture, not just longing for something or someone longing for what could have been something in a near hypnagogic state and how uh how you are kind of a, you you kind of sense that but you can't touch you can't touch nor partake and uh hmm. yeah the vapor could also could definitely symbolize could sort of symbolize that yeah. i mean now as i was reading it i thought uh, naturally uh, the vapor being a sort of um alternative realm a sort of you know ephemeral realm and it um it 
drew a connection in my mind to the current attempt to uh, put put over this idea of the metaverse. And uh, what what do you oh, think yeah. about that, Robert? So you, well, I wrote I wrote the, that before I wrote this before the metaverse was announced. But yeah, VR VR uh, plays a huge role in the book. Yeah. Uh, being kind of proposed and also also the the we'll get, probably get to Roger Blackstone later the presidential candidate but he proposes uh like a, an aesthetic based kind of utopia and like the freedom to live in the kind of society you desire and then there's this alternative uh the alternative proposes proposes the VR and the whole the Hollywood angle right. is connected to that but VR is kind of proposed as escapism so it's kind of like a false it's kind of presented as like a false option to kind of pacify these these uh these desires and keep uh people pacified but then it is also heavily linked to the show to the fictional show and to the realm of the vapor like there is some connection which is a bit which is a bit vague how they're connected so yeah I, i thought this was like very on the nose for what is going on right now with uh the metaverse because like if the take on the right and you know or not just even on the right seems to be that this is yes an attempt to pacify the normies who you know see declining standards of living so yeah like there's the memes going around of like hobos wearing vr goggles and it naturally as i'm reading vapor fornia i'm like wow robert was uh you know he saw this coming before uh it was announced yeah, uh, so Dan, you haven't even gotten into this the second half, but Matt, do you know the part I'm talking about where there's the different campaign ads about the future mm-hmm. and they deal with that, and then there's the vision where Max has this weird like hallucination type vision, and then he sees the he sees the villain, the director <laughs> Ari Meshel speaking with some politician, and they're discussing like the. Uh, like the living like eating bugs live yeah. uh, eating soylent living in pods and how we'll we'll give them what we want but it will oh, be course. fake like you remember that you're familiar um, with that, yeah that, that was um you know that's that's integral to sort of the final act in the book so to speak you know that moves us from this this narrative about max as an isolated individual with his troubles to a, 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 a plot that has sort of that's it's you know almost taps into a little bit of, of sci-fi thriller at times almost and a plot that um you know has has political ramifications. I think you said even uh, yeah it Black is Black Mirror esque. But um what was, what was I going to say? Basically that uh, yeah there to go back to the idea of you know what is the vapor? The answer is that uh, it's open for interpretation, but it is ambiguous. There's sort of this positive meaning embodied by uh the campaign of roger blackstone uh which and we'll get into in a little more depth later uh but basically this notion of um yeah the, the vapor wave the sort of politicization of vapor wave of it all the nostalgia for 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 lost futures the homesickness for a place that you're not sure if it exists there's a sort of I would say positive political element where it's like, how can we, you know, make a better world, make a more aesthetically pleasing world, or to put it in a sort of, you know, quasi distributist or third position or Blackstonian, or shall we even say Starkian uh, framework, you know, how can we increase, you know, access to beauty? I think that's kind of the the concern that animates both Blackstone's campaign in the novel, as well as uh, a lot of 
the protagonist Max's um, concerns and you you yourselves. Oh yeah, for sure. So um, so that's yeah, the positive. Yeah. So meaning. I do want to get yeah, that's the positive meaning and uh, kind of how like aesthetic how this the the super kind of the subconscious desires can become real through not just in a sense of like escapism but through uh, aesthetic mm-hmm. production and i do want to get more like to the the dynamics of blackstone but i guess for now i like i would like to focus on uh the humor the that that right. dynamic so yeah there's obviously an element of of fun of fun to the book I'd say unless you're like someone who's easily offended, it is a very fun book to read and uh, the kind of dramatic irony in the fiction. I'd say it is, it is, it's dark comedy, it's dark humor, but either both you, Matt, or Dan, do you want to comment on the humor of the book, the situation? Yeah, absolutely. So as I was going through it, it, uh, it employs a type of, um, a type of humor through dramatic irony that, uh, that I like to employ in my own writing that I always like to read. And that is when a character is saying something that um, in the context of the novel, the character doesn't realize it's crazy, but the reader, the reader knows it comes off as totally outrageous or off the wall. And the, the author, you know, presumably knows this as well. And so like sometimes like that can be the funniest type of writing when you're you're reading like what what came to mind is like well there's as many passages in vaporfornia that come to mind but could you uh you, if you want to go ahead and name a specific so passage go ahead when the um the black protesters are <laughs> protest are protesting <laughs> yeah. about how they're uh taking all of the young black men to the uh the suburbs to um you know enter these boxes for the uh the, the Okay, well, let's keep it. If you can explain it and keep it like PG thirteen, um, maybe all we need to say is it supposed to be? Are they like Black Lives Matter? Or are they more like the Black Manosphere? Well, I some think kind that of we protesters? can cover a lot of this by simply saying that this is the Black Tongues Matter movement. <laughs> okay, that's that gives our audience a clue, but I don't want to get too graphic. Yeah, I mean the and it takes. It's interesting as it also takes place. In Union Square in San Francisco, which currently is having a lot of like a lot of chaos. <laughs> yeah, and... yeah. I mean, so like when you're reading passages like that, and the the people are saying things that are just so insane, and you as the reader are just like, this is hilarious. And part of the reason, yeah, I think part with, of the reason yeah. why it's hilarious is the characters don't realize it's insane as they're saying it. Yeah, with that angle, it was kind of. Uh... Yeah, again, like it's it's hard to talk about without getting too too graphic. I want to keep the show somewhat clean, but it was like that whole angle was a parody of these kind of like moral hysterias that I remember from when I was a teenager. With Oprah was talking about these uh, weird sex well, fetishes, was, yeah. and then it's also it is social commentary. It's also a kind of uh, allegory about social hierarchies and capitalism. How how capital about anonymous how there's anonymous exploitation and then anonymous social hierarchies and then also a parody of how people will humiliate themselves just to have any role mm. any social status or role in the hierarchy so it is yeah it is very much an allegory but that that aspect of the book it, it just seems like it is like so outrageous that it's 
something that you would never you would never expect to happen in reality you would never expect to like hear about a reality so it is kind of like yeah it is yeah it's, funny it, in that there's sense. multiple levels so of wall. satire i mean you could kind of have different interpretations of what something like the black tongues matter movement or later in the book uh, where um, avoiding the racial angle because it's it, there's other uh, other evidently we learn that this that that the, uh, the, the what the BTM protesters are protesting is not just something that's happening to black men but rather that there's an entire exploitative um, sort of sexual network that um, we won't touch too much on because this is a family show but also because we don't want to give too many exactly, spoilers exactly. but uh, you know I, we've had many conversations about this Robert there's there's multiple levels to you know what exactly is being sat you know satirized or um, explored allegorically in some of these uh, bizarre uh, sexual scenarios um, that you describe. Um, you know, the- oh, actually, I did think the same. Not to get graphic, but the same scenario, I did stumble across it reading right. Na- Naked Lunch, and I wrote this before I read Naked Lunch. But it's it's this kind of same. It's just like to, something like totally, it's totally bizarre, and it doesn't make any sense in reality. But it's meant like it is. It's a satire, but then also an allegory about about social yeah, commentary. Yeah, it's coming from this deeply, you know. You... It's industrial. Right. It's like on an well, industrial scale. On an which, industrial scale. Yeah. Well, let's just say it. <laughs> but um, no, it is interesting with um, with Burroughs. And with, again, with that notion of the vapor to an extent, too, I think, um, you know, these are, you know, Burroughs famously uh, wrote that book um, under under the influence of drugs. And, um, you know, there's this notion and I, you know, I won't say what your process is, Robert. I won't I won't speculate. Uh, but 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 basically that that, that similar to, to Naked Lunch, it's it's drawn from sort of the deep recesses of the the unconscious mind wouldn't you say i, I think robert in general i think you yeah have a, it does yeah. uh a lot of i think yeah uh, yeah i got this from both books but a lot of it does you do have the feeling like you're, you're yeah in a and dream. you in general also this ties into your painting um there's something very uh, you know hypnagogic might be a little bit of an overused word but you know you're very good at just kind of tapping into this dreamy dreamier elements uh, of life um you know the the surreal and uh, the bizarre yeah. yeah like what uh Gio Panacetti said about how the the book and the and the visual artwork paintings they complement yeah, each yeah you, know, you have a real gift uh for tapping into that and it, and it comes through in the book and that's kind of how you end up with these incredibly fecund um metaphors and, and scenarios that I think are deeply open for interpretation on a sort of socio-political or philosophical level. And then, yeah, you'd also say the Jenga scene. Uh, I have that. That's quoted in the right. review you did. Yeah. And uh, if you want to comment on on that, that that happened prior to his discovery about like, the whole VR, the secrets about the VR. But that part, that part is very yeah. interesting. And I've I've read it on my show you with Greg Johnson. It's, I feel like that part. I just wanted to double back a little bit in terms of the dramatic irony of it all. Um, Dan has, and I will read that section in a moment, Robert, and we'll, we'll talk more about that. But I also did want to comment before moving on from the dramatic irony sort of concept here. Dan, your book, Nutcranker, is not out yet. But, uh, I mean, I really do. It's funny because, you know, these are two of my you know closest online friends. But um, 
and in so many ways nutcranker is very different than, than robert's books but there is kind of a similar um you know use of dramatic irony uh, both uh, Robert's book Definitely. and your book, Dan, have been compared to Confederacy of Dunces, which I also have not read and should. Uh-huh. Uh, but my understanding is it involves a lot of this dramatic irony. So if you would, uh, Dan, I'll, you know, if you want to comment on sort of like the extent to which your yeah. you know, without giving too much away because the book's not even out, but like you know how what, what is that dramatic irony level on which your work is kind of in dialogue with Robert's? If you want to comment on that, absolutely. So as I'm reading through Vaporfornia, I will come across passages like the one I just described, but, but many others, like even just like some of things as banal as Max's uh, observations about everyday life, about like, you know, how he needs to remember to be woke or, or whatever, <laughs> needs to remember to, and it's just like, anyone listening to him anyone listening to his interior monologue would say this um this guy sounds uh very foolish this guy sounds very silly but he himself doesn't realize that and so but does it come across i one thing i was worried about is i didn't want it to sound like a like a right winger parroting a woke oh no no yeah i actually did i modified it to take out things that were over the top you found it authentic like the inner dialogue of how a woke person would actually yeah, think. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, it, it does sound kind of um, comical, the way he thinks at times, but I I think that's good. And I think it's similar in some respects, as Matt noted, to my novel, Nutcranker, which is forthcoming this year. And uh, in Nutcranker, the protagonist, Spencer, he has all sorts of grandiose ideas which are, um, you know, very um, foolish or very silly when voiced aloud. And, but they're not, mostly they're not voiced aloud. They're things he's thinking. And so the reader reading this realizes that like, this is totally insane. And the author, and probably also understands that the author, you know, knows this is insane as well. But the humor is that the protagonist is bumbling around through the world, believing that his crazy ideas are valid and correct. And, you know, he's making the correct assumptions about the world and the way it works. And so I will draw a through line from that, from Nutcranker to Vaporfornia to Max. And yeah, when he's kind of like trying to like grapple with the way the world works, before meeting uh meeting roger he um yeah he has a lot of you know misconceptions which are you know pretty hilarious to to anyone reading it and as you know time goes on there's there are all sorts of other you know instances in the book where characters are saying things like i you know noted before with the protesters or you know all all sorts of um i mean they're the instances are too numerous to even really, you know, count where people are saying things that are, you know, outrageous and, and very silly, but they don't know that. And we do. And the, the author does. And, and so I think sometimes, uh, yeah, there's like, it takes a sophisticated reader to understand and appreciate dramatic irony because you have to understand that, the author doesn't fully, you know, the author understands how outrageous it sounds. And that's the point. 
For sure. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, 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 definitely. Um, I don't know. I mean, do you think there's an extent to which... Uh, so, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe we'll get more into, into this later, but is it, you know, we talk about the different way... Um, you know, so, so you've gotten some negative criticism from some people who just, like, don't get Vaporfornia or don't get Journey to Vapor Island. Robert, do you think there's an extent to where people don't always realize, like, where you're satirizing or where you're being allegorical? I mean, I do think that's my one... Oh, the people... Right, I mean, that's my one gripe. Uh, yeah, but it's like, yeah. I don't really have... Yeah, it's like, I don't... I think, like, those people... Uh, and I would say this with both, like, woke... With, like, wokeness, political correctness... And then those on the right who are complaining about degeneracy, I, I, I just yeah. I'll just say if it's too degenerate, it's just uh, social satire. But I just don't. I don't have time to like waste uh, corresponding. Uh, yeah, to those I hear you. I mean, just listen. I don't want to um, start like a uh, a flame war here, and I don't think anyone who's like listened to like a half hour into our show is going to even care. But I, I do think there is, and um, Jack from the Perfume Nationalist, I think, has uh, done a good job sometimes of also sort of calling us out. I, I love Frog Twitter. I love, you know, the dissident right, whatever. Like, there's a lot of great people, a lot of underappreciated voices, uh, you know, a lot of great literary voices. But, like, there, there are these people who sort of lack a sense of humor about any of it and who, like, in their un, in, in, inability... Okay, well, there was there was an incident. I'll just I'll yeah. just say what happened is I submitted. There's a, there's a guy <laughs> who's sort of in the uh, right literary right sphere named Lopez, <laughs> and I submitted to his uh, literary yeah. competition that would be uh, uh, Mencius Mulbug was like Curtis Jarvin was one of the judges, and uh, Lopez did a plug in my new book, and then this other commentary I don't mm. need to say his name is he put forth. A screen, a screenshot of my original book uh, of something that he considered extremely degenerate, and then Lomas had to take down his plug in my new book, and he told me that he'll he'll review oh, okay. it in the future. Yeah, see, look, that, I, I was going to say don't name names, but I don't look. Lomas obviously, everyone knows what Passage Prize is, or, or most of our listeners know what, pa- know yeah, what Passage, Passage Prize is. Right. A lot of people probably knew about this when it happened, so I guess there's no point in like being too coy about it. And as you said, it's not that we're like going after Lomez for this because he, you know, he clearly he put it up without necessarily knowing what he was promoting, and then found out that maybe it wasn't what he thought, which is reasonable enough, and maybe he'll review it in the future. Fine, uh, I, I'm not, um, you know, here to to put him down, uh, and, and you know, I'm not naming names of anyone else. But I do think that there are there is a certain faction of people who just, for whatever reason, you know, uh, you can't, can't necessarily appreciate, um, you know, when, when something is sort of being satirized, when it's allegorical. And look, you know, your your novel uh, it is pretty dirty in parts, as we've talked about. It's not for everyone, and that's okay. Uh, but when it kind of comes down to like um, act, like thinking this stuff is actually, uh, you know, socially filthy or something, and like bad to put out there that's that's yeah, annoying the problem, and they're, they're like, censorious yeah, like in the woke, same way that uh, woke, woke people, people are yeah. yeah woke people are insane but uh, you have the same issue with like these all these trad alt right types where they take and when it comes to degeneracy like they take everything literally like in some ways uh this this kind of makes me sound like some more uh, nihilistic like libertarian type which which I'm not, but they do they do say they're mirror images of like the, the other thing I wanted to say. Nut jobs. In, in terms of like where where Nutcranker and um, 
Journey to Vapor. We're, we're Nutcranker and Vapor Fournier and Journey to Vapor Island have a another uh, strange and awfully specific. <laughs> oh yes, yes. Is that um, th this had to come up? Uh, I have to say, the Robert, you obviously don't know this. You're hearing it here first, and perhaps no one that hasn't read Nutcranker knows this. Uh, but the protagonist of Nutcranker ends up with a, uh, a a blonde Jewish woman, an Alicia Silverstone type, uh, in Dan's novel, and um, this is also a, a type that uh, that we find uh, in both Vapor Fornia and Journey to Vapor oh, Island. Yeah. So I, I don't mean, I don't know what the the connection is there, but um, you know that's another another strange area. Well, he does have yeah he does the protagonist <laughs> has like several different love interests. Right? I guess I don't know. Is he a total insult? I don't know. But I guess his first, he, he is a, he had, there's a chapter, My Asian Girlfriend. So he briefly <laughs> has a, has an Asian girlfriend he meets in, at City College as a freshman, but he, they never really, they take a trip to Santa Cruz together. They go to Mount Diablo nearby, near Azuri and Walnut Creek in the Baria, but they never really get intimate, intimate. And then there's a few other, a few other love interests, including, Emily Bloom is referenced again. So, and then you make the kind of Mulholland Drive comparison mm -hmm. uh, to the girl. She's referenced, but Emily Bloom, she's uh, what she symbolizes. And then there's another there's another love interest in there. So, yeah, but what were you going to say about Dan's novel, if you want to comment on that? Oh, just the kind of, uh, I would say, uncanny uh, coincidence that uh, in both Dan's novel and yours, there's a there's an Alicia Silverstone type who uh, yeah who emerges. I I don't know if I have much to say on it beyond just I mean just it, that. it it is uh, a type, and I hadn't even thought about right. it until you know Matt mentioned it, and he you know mentioned that um, those uh, those types feature in your book, and um, <laughs> yeah, there there is something to um, that uh, kind of Jewish Nordic uh, you know. Uh, blend shall we say people might interpret like the character Ari Meschel kind of like the Weinstein-esque film director some people might interpret that as like a kind of like a racist well, archetype to be fair I'm not exactly up to that part yet but like nah like probably not like you know the the Hollywood film producer who is you know sexually predatory and what have you like I mean, yeah, you know, they're, Hollywood is, you know, full of, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, Jewish men. And yeah, so that, that will have a certain, if you are going to characterize and, you know, uh, lampoon a sexually predatory film director or film producer, yeah, there will probably be some Jewish elements. So no, it doesn't. Yeah, no, I think I actually, <laughs> yeah, not to, um... Rather than moving the conversation into the oh yeah, and then also there's the like, there's yeah. the Emma, you, there's the Emma character too. That mm -hmm. that's his other love interest, right? And she's she's a more positive image than is Mashal. <laughs> I mean, I, Robert, I think in general with um... no, I think she's kind of uh, I guess that that seems like an, that character Emma the Nature Girl. She's kind of an inside joke, but I think people who follow the podcast that was a parody of of a, of. Uh, I'm not going to, I won't name who he is, but that character was a parody of someone who writes for Tacky Mag and has been a, been a friend of the show. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, no, there's, there's all these different, you know, there's a lot of characters in, in the novel and, and they all correspond to, 
different weird elements of uh, Robert's imagination. Yeah, a lot, but a lot, of, a lot of, well, I see a lot of, a lot of inside jokes. That's the one thing is it is a very funny book, but, uh, and you can, if you don't understand this, understand these references, it's fine, but there are a lot of inside There's jokes. There's a lot that goes references. on sort of below the surface and you can always kind of go yeah, back exactly. and find more. Um, but I was going to say with Meshel, I mean, it's like, Yes, some people would interpret that as being possibly anti-Semitic or, like, um, at least stereotypical, but... But no, but the thing is, like, you actually do see that archetype in mainstream uh, films. You sure do, because, as Dan said, you know, there's a lot of people like that in Hollywood, and some of them are predatory, and kind of like with, in a novel, in your novels, and on your substack, you know, Robert, you're someone who's willing to call a spade a spade. You don't have a specific agenda against any one group of people, but you're also willing to, you know, as we are to an extent too on this podcast. As a lot it's of people, satire. I wouldn't say it's not a. It's not a. It's not like a. I wouldn't say it's not a political dog whistle. It's it's humor. Oh yeah, and satire. it's not a dog whistle. It's on the nose. It's a, yeah. it's a it's a satire that is admittedly found in reality and that we can all sort of laugh a, a bit about. You know, it's not. They're, they're, it's not malicious, shall we say. But before, you know, we could... And I'd say, yeah, yeah, I would add that, like, with... So the same... The kind of same with, like, the ra- the racial stuff is I actually did... I, there was more, like, racial slurs, racial references. Mm-hmm. And, like, I actually cut back on that because I initially wrote it as, like, American History X in reverse. Right. But I didn't want it to be... Because that would sound like a cliche alt-right book. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted it to be... The political angle to be nuanced and there to be satire. So there are there are racial jokes, racial references, racial slurs, racial observations. But I didn't want that to be a major focus. I'm sure some people reading it they may they may interpret certain things the wrong way. Like they may not like how their group is uh-huh. represented. But that wasn't yeah that wasn't the end yeah. intention. But only as far only as far as explaining some of the the class and demographic dynamics yeah, in California yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not intended to denigrate any any particular group. For sure. I mean, this is probably a cringe in Reddit um, reference, but I'll make it nonetheless. It's, it's like what they always say and perhaps still say about South Park. You know, it, it, you, you're an equal opportunity offender. Um, there's a lot of people on the dissident right who can't make that claim. They really do have their pet hatreds of groups. But but in your in your um, novels and also I would say in your, in your novels which are yeah satirical. I do yeah it is equal yeah. opportunity offender and like I think yeah even like the the skinheads the neo Nazis in the book right. like they're not they're I don't give them a flattering portrayal no, they're also a satire yeah hundred um, percent but uh, why don't I, I have this in front of me so why don't I read okay so this is the this is the Jenga scene yes so I I've read this before in the Greg Johnson but Matt you go ahead I'll go ahead and, and read this and, and then and, give it, and then give it. your uh, take and I'll on give it. my take on it I think it will kind of lead us into the next level of the conversation I, I like this and it's it's the the lengthiest um, section that I quote from your book in my Substack review of it um, because I think it really does. Like, in this one passage, you could do, like, what they called in college a close reading of it, and you could really touch on almost every theme within the book. Uh, but basically, this happens, and I also think it's a really good example, by the way, as what, you know, of, of a comparison I've often made that you're, you're not only a writer, Robert, but a painter with words. I think it's a pretty good um, example of that, too. So this, this happens um, in sort of that more futuristic L.A. that you imagine in the second half of Vaporfornia. Uh, Max is in a fictionalized version of what L.A. natives or people who've spent some time here will know as um, 
the Beverly Center. Beverly Experience. It is a yeah, reimagined mall. And... and I guess, yeah, just to give some background information, is like all these malls have been getting these uh, these old 80s or even 90s malls have been undergoing these minimalist renovations. Right. So, so this would be the opposite kind of renovation, a maximalist renovation um, done by Roger Sort of Blackman. how, like, <laughs> say, like the original the original mall kind of kept in the same original direction with the positive dynamics but then evolved and became like more futuristic so the mall would in a sense be that alternative timeline exactly retro futurism um so yeah go so ahead a lot going on here uh max kind of um takes well i, I will i don't want to over explain this but basically he goes on a bit of a you know, adventure within an adventure within the sort of bowels and sort of back rooms of this mall. And he finds himself in front of, um, and now I'm quoting, a tall Jenga-like tower made of illuminated cubes of brick glass going way up into the dark sky. The cubes constantly moving and changing color with the lights turning on and off. From the base of the tower, I walk up a neon-lit stairwell. Looking out, I see the glass cubes floating out into space. As I examine them closer, I notice each one contains a particular memory, some traumatic, some romantic. Some cry out in pain for their mischance to come into fruition, while others taunt me about the opportunities I missed out on. I try to walk on to one where I see a long-lost crush, but each one just floats away into space. All my missed dreams, the many that didn't come into fruition, each particular moment lost in that state for all eternity, crying out to me as they float away into the abyss. I did this to them for not taking action and giving them a chance to bloom. That's how life works. How if you fail to move on to the next stage in life, you're permanently fucked with no turning back to correct your mistakes and missed opportunities. What Blackstone said about how you have to backtrack in order to get to that path to a better future. So that, to me, it's it's first and foremost, it's a, um, you know, it's an aestheticization, it's a, a visual image, it could even be a painting, you know, you could imagine this as a painting, uh, encapsulating the, you know, the narrator's psychological state. It's a sort of obsessive, compulsive, perhaps, notion of all of these things in my past, all of these opportunities that I missed, all of these things I could have been you know, girls I could have been with, you know, other paths that I could have gone on to a more fulfilling life rather than the sort of, um, you know, incel reality that I found myself in. Uh, you know, it's it's sort of in, in the parlance uh, of the <laughs> incel forums, it's the it's the black pill or the age pill. It's the, you know, it's too late. Or that quote from, yeah, like the incel meme, it's over, or sort of like the, or the, or the Welbeck, that Welbeck, uh, Book, whatever right the infamous like nightclub nightclub scene where one character he says you'll forever be haunted by the young lovers you never had exactly that. yes you must also say it is the care even though like the character the character is only 18 and he's just entering centering adulthood and finding his way in the world but it's also relevant uh to people to people having like midlife crises and talks of like the geriatric millennials yeah right no, it, it's relevant to, to to a lot of people in that social situation, whether they're incels or just, you know, neats or people who are variously wake up and they're 30 or they're 40 or they're 50, you know, they, whatever middle point in their life they're in, they wake up and they find they are not satisfied, that they have not 
the world has not lived up the expectations that they were sort of brought up to have um whether it's a you know failure of romantic prospects professional prospects whatever it's that psychological notion of 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 a you know a personal tragedy of one's personal lost future and then it becomes becomes physical physical and aesthetic yeah it becomes it's it's physicalized and aestheticized but also we're not just talking about personal psychology here this chap this little section from your book also encapsulates a very political notion um you know as i write in my um in my review you know one thing that you understand as a writer, Robert, and um, I think this uh, another writer who understands this really well and embodies it is, you know, the person I consider to be pretty much the greatest living author, uh, Michelle Welbeck. You know, there's this understanding that one man's one man's tragedy, one man's sadness, one man's ennui, um, tapping into that and writing a story about that, um, that ties into something much broader you know, call it the decline of the West, if we want to be sort of bombastic and Spenglerian, or, you know, these, 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 you know, these more, these more limited notions like the decline of California, you know, one man's, um, you know, one man's sadness and one man's tragedy um, ties into, you know, these, this broader sense of decline and these broader social issues. And Robert, I have to say, you know, I think that, that is in many ways a story of your writing <laughs> uh and, and in many ways even even in the substacks um you know th- that they uh encapsulate um you know someone you have your your perspective you, you know you have such a unique perspective robert uh, but also you you're able to branch out and talk about these larger issues in a very unique way um but to spell it out um you know m- more specifically uh, this notion of lost future, it's both uh, it's both a personal issue, but also the notion of lost future in a political sense. And then, yeah, that's also the other metaphor is Roger Blackstone, uh, his campaign promo also encapsulates that theme where the couple are driving and then they go back and they make a U-turn. Like that's also physicalizes the exact same theme. Yeah, I know you could you could find recourse into pretty serious sort of traditionalist right um, thinkers. Um, yeah, you know, sort of um, what's his name, De Benoit, who I've not read that much of, admittedly, or, or Dugan. There's this notion of like we really have to go back to the root of, of where all of this started to go wrong. You know, we, there's this this sort of radical traditionalist notion of um, going back. But the, yeah, but the, the pol- yeah, like the politics of retrofuturism. It's different than retro, than radical traditionalism of just going back, but maybe about finding the moment, like where you drive back and you miss your wrong turn. Yeah, that that's finding that wrong yeah, turn, but then also propel. And then how yeah. to how to propel from there, and then get to that point. And it's a way to kind of uh, go against go against like space and time, like to break the rules of the universe. Yeah. Uh, that's a th- that, that to do the impossible, and uh, kind of like Blackstone, yeah, Blackstone's kind of his Prometheism type philosophy is about like doing the Im- doing the impossible. Doing the impossible because but, yeah, but I do want to get yeah. It's not wanna... simply reactionary. It's going back to go forward. It's nostalgia for a lost future, not a lost past. Um, so that's exactly when the, exactly the rules so... start to get bent a bit. But you know the the point stands. Okay, so yeah, I do want to talk more about the character's sociolo- sociological, socio-demographic background. And uh, so yeah, he is a downwardly, downwardly mobile 
white upper middle class. And it's a different demographic in Cal. This is, this is California. I think it's like a different demographic than like the white working class from the Rust Belt who were initially attracted to Trump. It is very different. Yeah. He, it's downwardly mobile, but from the white upper middle class. His dad was in tech. So yeah, immense, immense class and status anxiety, culturally very, very swippel and in a very much swipple meaning i always like to spell things out um swipple meaning uh it, it was an old meme of uh shit white people like which oh is an yeah old blog. yeah uh it basically means you're standard maybe a bit dated but yeah oh no it's it's it remains fantastic swipple meaning the the stuff that sort of upper middle class uh white people like <laughs> basically your average npr listener yeah, yeah so really and also his relationship with whiteness how uh the thought pro so he is a like this neurotic like white liberal and how his transformation where he does go from woke to changing his ideology but but kind of skipping like he did Mm -hmm. he's very much like there is like a legitimacy of identity politics based on personal needs he's he never becomes like he's not a class reductionist nor is he like a colorblind like idw type he's very much focused on on identity politics but he does make the shift with blackstone later on but uh matt you were saying like yeah he it is a sense like the questions about his wokeness whether it's legitimately a moral principle or he's just responding to pressure but you would even say like a lead over production is a thing oh yeah, yeah i did say that like um that was something i sort of thought the other day while we were we were taking notes to, for this show um you kind of i think that max is, he's definitely a very empathetic person so i think some of his wokeness comes from that comes from want to, he's genuinely concerned with sort of as i said earlier access to beauty he believes that that you know he has some notion of he that he believes that beauty right. is a, he believes beauty is a human right but he starts at it from from an egalitarian sense but then from but that's his basis like everyone everyone is entitled to beauty as a as a human right in a leftist sense but then it kind of exposes him like to blackstone's campaign and then issues that are more taboo very controversial like including eugenics right so he kind of goes from someone who you wants to increase access to beauty in a liberal sort of quasi socialist or marxist sense about increasing access and then he later gains a much harder edge about, um, you know, how society should be structured in a way, you know, that's 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 hardened. Um, but not to get into that. Also, um, this this notion of, you know, is is Max? You, you mentioned that he's a downwardly mobile sort of upper middle class white in California, and that he kind of falls um, victim to this notion of elite overproduction, um, something that the sociological thinker Peter Turchin talks about. And uh, the idea sort of I stumbled across the other day is that sometimes wokeness and performative wokeness, that can be a reaction to elite overproduction. Um, That a lot of his initial apparent liberalism that later gets sort of peeled away as he becomes an unlikely Blackstonian, a lot of that initial uh, stuff is because right now the condition um, in the United States and especially in in a blue state like California... Um, or a blue city like New York, um, you know, is in order to uh, establish yourself among um, the elites 
the 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 you know the the, yeah, the, the true, cultural elite. You, you have to be uh, the locust. That's yeah, you yeah. do. But Matt, would you interpret it as a genuine like a moral principle, or him him having white guilt, or do you think, or you interpret it as Max is trying to like status signal? I think it's a combination of both. I think his empathy is is genuine. So I think that he, um, you know, justifies some of it to himself in the sense of, you know, I care about people. I want people to be happy. I want them to have access to beauty. But I think if you kind of look a little bit under the surface, he is, you know, he is a um, white upper middle class uh, individual uh, coming of age in a time when it's really evident that he is not going to necessarily have the status he would have uh, in past generations. He's living in a state with extreme social pressures uh, an, ex- an extremely high cost of living and I think there is this unconscious level on which he's saying you know how do I h- how do I make myself someone who is appealing to the NPR listeners of the world because he wants to be what, what, is he, what does Max want to be at the beginning he wants to be a, a photo a blogger yeah. a journalist he cares about the environment he really has his sights set on being a member of that liberal elite and he um, is he's but, both, yeah, yeah he's both moral He's both high in conscientiousness, but he is he is thinking a lot about about status because he, yeah he does have low low status. He has low status. And he is he is thinking a lot about that. So yeah, like how I don't want to use I don't know, the word red pilled is so cliche. I don't want to mm-hmm. use it, but how his transformation is again like I decided against the kind of like American history X in reverse. So yeah, a lot of it is just a kind of exposure to the hypocrisy of society, of uh, being very cruel and cutthroat, but also gaslighting him about his privilege. And then, so he does seek social justice for himself, but uh, social justice in a more progressive sense, but then also a birthright for himself in a more rightist sense. Mm-hmm. So both 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 themes are relevant. And then the idea that we're prevented presented with all these false choices politically and like how we can live and how there is, there's a sort of an alternative way to do things. Mm-hmm. And then these alternative ideas are presented by Roger Blackstone, uh, who is, who is politics. You could say is almost like a self satire of my writings and he's hard to pigeonhole, uh, but you could maybe make comparisons initially to Trump, but perhaps Elon Musk or Andrew Yang, uh, Dan, uh, you were saying that uh, I posted the debate scene uh, previously, and there was a debate scene where the characters actually evolved, has evolved since the first book. Blackstone, Roger Blackstone, plays a much bigger role than in Journey to Vapor, the island book. So, uh, Dan, do you want to comment specifically on on that debate scene, both the humor, but then also the the po- the politics of the three different candidates who are running contrast so yeah definitely and that was one of my favorite scenes so far it um not only is it funny but um it elucidates the different perspectives of the three candidates in a way that you know casts a real kind of uh mirror to the society that we live in right right now so david cone rodriguez he's just like a you know a very much an avatar of the AOC school of neoliberalism. That's at least that's how, how I read it. And the character, um, I, the neocon or, you know, conservacon, uh, character, (laughs) I, his name at the moment kind of escaped 
Wilbur, Rex yeah, Jackson Wilbur, III, the exactly. governor of Oklahoma. And yeah, so the kind of like he loves free market capitalism, but uh, any thought of protecting workers, any thought of conserving American heritage, obviously is anathema. And the most interesting character to me, uh, perhaps even in this whole novel in Vaporfornia, is Roger Blackstone, because he is this interesting amalgam of, uh, yes, obvious parallels to Trump, but uh, parallels to, to Ellen as well. Parallels to, um, God, to, you know, Andrew Yang, to, uh, you know, to great artists, you know, great, uh, great thinkers. And, um, yeah, it's like, in, in a sense, Vaporfornia is uh, about, you know, imagining a future that, uh, that we could have. And part of that imagining is, like, imagining, well, who would be the person who gets us there? And, like, I, someone recently asked me, who should be uh, in charge of America if you could snap your fingers and put someone in charge? And it took me by surprise because mm. I, I didn't really know who to say. Before I had people, but I, there's not a, actually I can't name a single person. Yeah, now. I, you imagine Roger, one. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine one. Yeah. So like with Roger Blackstone, like some people might call him. Some people might call him a populist. Some people might call him an elite technocrat, a fascist, uh, a socialist libertarian. He could be a Promethean, a futurist, a traditionalist retro is a lot of different things to different people so yeah obviously people who have read my my sub stack will will recognize the policy proposals but a bit more satirical but uh mm-hmm. yeah yeah so yeah so it's but yeah like how would you how would you kind of if you would just say a, rad, a radical centrist like if you had to yeah kind of if you, if, if you yeah if you saw him on tv like how if you saw him on tv and he was real like how would you classify him and how would you imagine his hypothetical political coalitions well the, the main problem in politics today and here maybe i'm getting on a bit of a soapbox is that uh, no one is willing to tell the truth and in order to fix most problems, you actually do need to tell the truth. You need to tell the truth about various yeah, exactly. issues, such as race, gender, immigration, and, and all sorts of other things that people, you know, for the past 60 or 70 years don't want to tell the truth about. And um, Blackstone, clearly, he doesn't seem to be someone who has animus one way or the other. Uh, but he does seem to be someone who uh, is, you know, we before said red-pilled is an overused term, but he is red-pilled, and Wilbur is not. Obviously, uh, Cone Rodriguez is not, and if you are, you know, able to kind of accept and process these difficult truths, then you can enact policy proposals that actually address people's problems. So, I took Blackstone to be a sort of Andrew Yang who, um, you know, who never cucked. <laughs> yeah, I could say, like, relevant. It's relevant to what I've called for with, like, the, the radical center, alt-centrism, is it's a rightist, uh, rightist-baser understanding of human nature, mm-hmm. but offering more progressive solutions. That's how I describe it. And... Uh, yeah, there's more like the, with the meeting when Max actually does meet Blackstone, which was a complaint about my first book. You never actually show him. You get deeper into the philosophy, but there, yeah, there is 
So yeah, with with Max. So Blackstone, he's hard to pigeonhole, but uh, yeah, Max and Blackstone come from different angles, but they end up meeting at the same place. And the appeal is aesthetic, but then also the personal interest. And and Blackstone also, he he tones down his views to be more palatable to the masses, proposing platinum plans for all for including African Americans, mm-hmm. which it's that's different, but that little like kind of like Trump, but that's different because everyone gets a platinum plan, not just certain groups, <laughs> tailoring politics to personal needs. That is something that I actually uh actually advocate for. Right. And I would, yeah, I would would like to see in politics, but it is different because you have Jordan Peterson who talks about it's kind of a, a bit of a kind of bootstraps mentality, like put yourself your house in order and you have to basically put yourself in order before you lecture others on politics and then the libertarian uh red-pilled youtuber aaron clary always he talks about this too where he he has a clary test where he judges <laughs> political figures on whether they're self-made or not but the i the the poli- the politics that i've advocated for in substack and in this book the psychology is basically is encouraging people to be very honest and direct. Like what are their personal needs? Everyone should take their personal interests and put them into a platform and then everyone debate from there. And a lot of stuff, like a lot of these, a lot of motives are subconscious and people don't understand these subconscious motives, the psychology driven politics. So I do call for people being very blatant about about their about how politics fits people's uh personal needs and the need right and the need to sort of better manage that so that that is a, that definitely is a major theme addressed in the book it's this kind of uh yeah definitely a theme addressed in the book definitely a theme addressed on your Substack. um you know to ground this in the question of you know who is roger blackstone and what does he stand for it's really hard to define because yes he's a radical centrist he's all over the map he has ideas from every quadrant of the political spectrum the meme that comes to my head is the sort of chad centrist versus the virgin yeah centrist. exactly uh, yeah. We, and this is a funny meme if you know the you know fairly reliable p- political quadrant test the virgin centrist is dots revolving around the very middle the chad centrist is you know where you you have ex- you, you the dots of your of your policy you know your ideas they they are all around the extremes of of you know libertarian right libertarian left uh, you know economic right economic left etc yeah cuz um, he does have he could be his elements of an of a technocrat like michael bloomberg some libertarianism some alt right some left wing views some populists but yeah it is, yeah, it is different. It's kind of interesting. Like, Matt, did you see that discussion I was having with some some guy on Twitter about <laughs> where he was speculating like the political real uh, alliances? So I think his assessment was like Roger Roger Blackstone would be a coalition of like white white populists, the alt right, lower class lower class POCs. And then upper class whites, like upper class whites who voted for Bloomberg. Yeah, he'd have he'd groups. have a big tent following because he ha- he's uh, his views are extremely eclectic. But I think it's also I think it's more 
there's more to it than simply that he takes a wide range of views to appeal to a wide yeah, range of people. Yeah, that's the thing, because that's what have, I've been advocating yeah. for in my articles. Is not It's not radical centrist and just randomly like creating some like salad, tossing some salad, no. like the right wing and the left wing. It does need core principles to stand upon. Right. And let me let me say that I think you know, I think it can get hard to define, so I don't mean this as the final word on the matter, but I think that it has to do kind of what you you said and it, it's hard to quite put your finger on, but it, it's it's a politics that's founded in um in sort of meeting people's uh, psychological needs on a deeper level than, you know, political ideologies like, you know, cap mere capitalism or mere communism are willing. You know, th- those ideologies they're all they're focused on you know hyper specific you know economic how should things be governed but but you and blackstone in your novel invite us kind of to a deeper level of like what are these deeper psychological needs that need to be catered to that a lot of politics don't even touch upon well actually Uh, i think the only one i think you mentioned yeah like so positional goods yeah but who could that could have aesthetic value and then that gets uh yeah so like I think Yang, Yang maybe cucked a bit too much, but Yang is actually the only uh, political figure who who did actually address uh, the psychological angle of politics. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So I actually yeah. do think uh, I do applaud Yang for that. He's the only and he was uh, candidate he was something actually, good even the other day. Like he's still kind no, of no. He did. I saw he had a recent video where actually Yang said like, "Why are we beating up on incels? Like if there's right. if someone's in a bad place of despair." We should be trying to help them. So yeah, Yang. I think Yang really is like the only yeah. politician really talking about psych- psychological motives and psychological needs and issues. And then also, I think like the taboo, the taboo of the whole eugenics angle, and this kind of gets into like the taboo of people as a commodity. But both uh, Matt and Dan, like, what was your take on on that angle? And with Blackstone proposing a version of that. Of of eugenics, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know, Dan. Do you have any hot takes there? So, um, yeah. I mean, I don't know uh, if there's a take that wouldn't be hot in this uh, particular area, but um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like it's something that is, you know, obviously very. Um, it makes sense. It's just like, of course, you want more intelligent people to, you know, and and more attractive, and increasingly due to a sort of mating the attractive and intelligent people are the same. And so, yeah, you know, and... Yang actually is interesting as I think Yang may have said that in the war, yeah, the war on normal yeah, people. Yeah, he talks about that. But then, but then it's also, it's interesting because you think of eugenics as like a, a right-wing social Darwinist view. There's maybe another angle to that that is more more kind of progressive. Maybe, uh, yeah, obviously compared, like with links to the great class swap article the progressive yeah. angle to that which actually does have historical basis going back to the original progressive movement in the early 20th century for sure well listen i mean eugenics is not a, a big area of interest of mine necessarily and i don't have like this great take on like how it should and shouldn't be applied but I'm, i often when it comes when the topic comes up i often think of this very brief i think article that um you know adam parfrey wrote whatever uh about how you know eugenics persist to this day under different guises call it uh you know uh family planning you know some of these things are sort of euphemisms the point being that even if we don't have actually a program of selective breeding and blah 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 and and even if no one's getting sterilized 
you know, there are still well, I guess the policies key point to emphasize, always, yeah, policies, always incentivize some kind of that, breeding or not. Yeah. yeah. Policies uh, in general will always select winners and losers, like which groups will go on and pass on their genes, regardless of what system there is. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that's well, but the so, interesting yeah, so thing about today is that the winners today are not passing on their genes. The winners exactly. today are uh, increasingly like you, you have many women in their 30s who never have children. And you, you do have some uh, upper class or upper middle class people who have kids, but they're certainly not having as many kids as lower class uh, people who tend to be uh, uh, people of color, shall we say. And um, yeah, so the, the only upper class people who are really having a lot of kids are conservatives. And, uh, and even then, you know, not, not a ton, not enough for, you know, to really, re- you know, replace the upper class. Right. So what, what's happening is we, we are approaching some sort of, uh, you know, c- collapse of sorts. And so uh, in reading this book, like, yes, absolutely. A Roger Blackstone eugenics program is not only, you know, uh, interesting, it, you know, frankly, would be very useful if not needed. And yeah, to kind of clarify, he doesn't even advocate for anything like extreme or inhumane. Like a lot of it is just talking about like tax incentives. Yeah, exactly. So it's like most people wouldn't even call it eugenics. But but hey, on this topic, you yeah yeah you could propose you could propose something like that and word and present it as like totally humane and palatable. You could, and because we're because we've reached to it organically in the conversation. I mean, Robert, do you want to give that you know that really good? I don't even know if you're the original one to say it, but it's a really good soundbite from the great class swap article about you know um, the the different uh, sections of society. You know how I don't have it on me right now. No, you don't. But need to I, th- quote I it, think but... it is the same, the exact same quote is presented by Roger Blackstone in the debate scene. Right. So maybe the, if you if you have it if you want I don't to have plug a quote. I don't but I it's it's a it's you know these are big topics talking about but this is kind of a crystal clear encapsulation. The upper class controls too much of the wealth. The lower class controls too much or not controls. The lower class constitutes too much of the population. These things need to come together, you know. So there's a a, a, distri- a redistributism of wealth so that people have a higher standard of living, but also we need to incentivize, you know, people with uh you know the upper classes people of better breeding and of higher education higher iq frankly to to you know breed more to be more of the population because right now yeah exactly two, i would yeah. actually uh i said it's a thought experiment i would like to see a more like a palatable humane version of that presented but it is interesting like but the thing is it's not it's not social darwinism i think it would and if it's done proper if it's done humanely obviously a exactly. extreme version yeah. of it could be inhumane and totalitarian right. but if it's presented the right way i think in many ways it's actually progressive i think in many many ways it's progressive because no one no one here is talking about sterilization or anything like that so the trajectory things are on right now as a society is that the the low you know basically uh the the lower economic brackets uh, continue to sort of outbreed the the upper economic brackets. So what's happening? It, the trajectory of the world right now 
is that you know it's the, the, the most upper class people are not threatened they are continuing to breed and be more isolated behind the, you know they have their private schools they're behind the the gated um you know their gated communities these kinds of things are uh, as i say in my article they're even more stark uh-huh. in a place like california perhaps than certain other parts of the country but that that's the trajectory of this continuing isolation you know the, the very the very most wealthy people don't really have to worry about things like population rates because they're always going to have the money to be able to isolate themselves and leave these lead these glorious luxurious lives um whilst uh the the lower classes the, the lowest classes continue to breed more and more and more uh, and you know and just proliferate and the people who get fucked by that are are you know the former middle class the people who originally you know made america great um to hit that trumpian note um the the, the middle class broadly speaking is kind of squeezed out by both of these trends of upper class of the upper class sort of isolating themselves more and more and and the lower classes and you know immigrant classes you know out out competing them um in terms of breeding in terms of jobs you know however you want to put it so what blackstone blackstone becomes an advocate for that middle class of people um you know create again to, to increase the access to beauty that is currently being uh, isolated more and more to to a very highest class um, and, and you know, there's this this false noblesse uh, noblesse oblige where it's like oh but we can you know we can bring in immigrants and 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 you know we're, we're so great for um you know for people of color and all that that's the sort of false noblesse oblige i think like the the physical appearance of the population like it's sort of like there's that like open borders for hotties meme like it does <laughs> one hand it does come across as kind of like friend like, like really cringy kind of like manosphere type stuff but at the same time it is it is legitimate because because classes do select like a sort of mating does select select for beauty and it does end up having like such such a strong impact on society and then so there's there's that angle and the talk about like dysgenics impacting like beauty as much as IQ there's that there's that angle and Blackstone actually does want to want to reverse that and that's sort of appealing appealing to Max but who's who's a bit a bit of a, a bit kind of but kind of feels excluded excluded from that so he's he's approaching it from that way but it is interesting uh this discussion i was having on twitter like who this policies would appeal to would it appeal to the middle class the pro some of the proletariat some to the wealthy like it's really hard to say because uh but it would create like really interesting uh, new political coalitions possibly some of the wealthy might support it some of the poor, some of the middle class, right. but it'll create a really interesting political realignment. Yeah, I think it's a big tent. I can tell you who it wouldn't appeal to, and I think you even touch on this in Vaporfornia. It wouldn't appeal to a certain faction of the upper class, you know, the what, what, who would be called the parasitic elite, you know, the, the, the people who are framed as the great enemy in a lot of these conversations are people who, um, who you know, have their wealth and just absolutely want to hoard it. That, to... Yeah, I was kind of yeah, I was thinking about about that. They they benefit from the status quo, but the guy who was put on Twitter I was interacting with, he think he actually thinks it would appeal to the segment of the wealthy. Right, I think there. It's, so it's a, it's a for to the to the wealthy. It's a question. It's do you want to be part of a society of of a, of a, of a renaissance of something coming back stronger and greater that is a collective good and and a new thriving civilization or do you want to you know buy your private island and and bugger off 
And I think that's that that is you know I I don't think it's that's where it's not it's not communism it's not you know it's not eat the rich at all it's you know let us re um reaccess and redistribute perhaps where needed resources to make civilization great again to thrive again um you know and, and if you're wealthy if you're poor you can be a part of this you can buy in it just requires a certain level of cultural commitment on your part i think that's kind of the invite of someone like black yeah I'm like on the other hand or do you want to structures and, yeah. and what that's competing against is politics again from right from left uh which say um you know don't worry about that no, we'll we'll give you your slice of the pie, whether it's welfare or allowing you to, um, you know, to keep to keep your hoarded wealth. You know, that sort of more that smaller politics of, of, of appealing to just like sort of sort of these this short term politics that you find on the left and the right, where it's just you know, w- you know what signs the next check. Um, that that's what so much of politics, both left and right, is. And someone like Blackstone and some you know, there was a promise of this in Trump. There was a promise of this in Yang. If Elon Musk ever runs, presumably there'll be a promise of it. Uh, you know, where there, there's there's a, there's this notion uh, that's neither left nor right necessarily of you know refounding you know something collective and good. Um, you know that maybe has elements of nationalism, maybe has. Elements and then of would you say? But would you say like we talk about like the other theme is like pan enclavism, and does that pan enclavism or like a rightist version of multiculturalism? And I discussed this with Greg Johnson mm-hmm. too, but does that does that fit into this, or could you say, could you interpret that as more as like a controlled balkanization? Because Greg is uh, skeptical. Yeah, he seems skeptical because he said there would be every because everyone would be divided, like no one could, uh, you couldn't have a nation that would go on and do great things, and that was his that that would come together to do great things everyone would be inwards focused on their own little uh, enclave so that's that's a critique of that and like how to make it work like one argument is that is it the least bad of all the options presented or is it something that is utopian based upon the true freedom principle um something like pan-enclavism or or multiculturalism but a version of multiculturalism where all groups are encouraged to take part and pursue their group interests. Well, well, Robert, I mean, you know that, uh, that this that this is not to to put your idea down at all. I mean, I, I I'm also skeptical of the way something like pan enclavism would work in in effect. Um, I think that you know it could just be controlled balkanization. It, it could just be uh, you know a disaster of different groups ending up competing. However, I do think that in your conception of it, you are you do have something more. Blackstonian in mind, where this is a way to, uh, you know, allow different um, groups to coexist in a way where each can kind of thrive on their own. Um, so, wh- you know, what that would look like, I don't know. It's so far from a social reality at this point um, that who knows. But I do think that you, in your conception of it, are trying to give it the sort of best blush. You know, what 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 could this look like in the most positive sense yeah so you emphasize like the true freedom principle true freedom being able to live in the kind of community society you want to sort of like even like the, it's cheesy but the theme park model mm-hmm. and then also a specialization uh, approach to politics specialization approaches to economics education uh race relations and even like a, a, a fl- almost like a bit of a kind of like flexible 
caste system, not an oppressive one, but one helping people find their needs. So it would, for it to work, it would need some very positive, progressive vision. Uh, it couldn't just be, uh, it couldn't just be controlled balkanization. I do want to plug, there's an article, uh, there's an article about my ideas with promoting an alt center from a, from a Swedish site. Uh, most of the points in the article are, are issues we've already gone over, but mm-hmm. if, uh, if Matt, do you want to pull it up in the chat? Yeah, I pulled it up. It's by Joaquin Anderson. Yeah, by Joaquin Anderson, a... and the site is called motopool.new. Right. Um, yeah, Joaquin wrote a book for Arctos a few years back I right. that I read called Rising from the Ashes, the Right of the 21st Century. I think that's actually verbatim its title. I'm impressed with myself that I was able to pull that out of my memory. But, um, yeah, he and he, uh, I guess he's he's been reading your Substack uh, because he... Uh, wrote an article in in Swedish um, about. I, I admit I haven't read the translation of the article yet, but what what is the basic upshot there, Robert? He he basically, as a um, as a sort of dissident rightist or new right figure in Sweden, um, thinks thinks there's something to this idea. What what's his general take? Yeah, he he does. He talks about uh, the different ideas like right wing right wing multiculturalism and the great class swaps. So one thing he does add is. Uh, he opposes it for Europe, and but he thinks it's the best solution for somewhere like uh, California. That's one point he well, makes. Oh yeah, no, I think that's actually a pretty profound, uh, or deceptively, you know, profound—not deceptively, but you know, it's um, it's a good point because you know, Europe uh, analyzing the issues as they stand in Europe, which is um, this place of countries that each in their own right have hundreds and thousands of years of tradition versus a place like California, which is relatively a, a new place, a new, a new corner of Western civilization. Uh, and that is extremely diverse. Um, and yeah, it, it's a good point. Um, because a lot of your thinking on panels yeah, is, yeah, is in fact, you are not issue. talking about Europe at all. You're talking it is about, focused, you're not yeah, it about is very much, you could say there's comparisons to ethnopluralism from your, the European new right, but it is very much an American California centric idea. And uh, I was discussing this with my show I did of Indian Bronson, like with the with like the right and Americanism. There's this sense of loss, and uh, by sort of just being like like white Americans being one of many tribes competing for their group interests, to them they see it. The woke left opposes that for different reasons, but to the right they feel a sense of loss that they're giving up something great just to become like another minority competing for their their group interests. And I focus again on those positive, progressive, and utopian aspects of that as a, as a counterbalance to that. And I will say is uh, I do predict that way of thinking is the future, but who knows how long it will take. Yeah, no, um, you predict the future specifically in California, right? Uh, I would say the future of the West, the United States in general. Okay. Well, not even to split hairs over that. I mean, yeah, it's worth talking about. You know, I guess I feel like we we never maybe properly introduced your substack. I mean, you you basically you write about these issues there and you, and your issues are are very rooted um you know to California and the way i describe your substack robert is that you know i don't necessarily 
fully agree with everything you say, but are I maybe not even necessarily supposed to fully agree with everything you say because a lot of what you present are thought experiments. But basically, you are trying to kind of think your way through um, in a way you know that does that, that would do honor to to someone like Blackstone, you know, who has this incredibly eclectic and from totally different premises sort of political agenda. Um, you are trying to think through these problems that California faces that we're not even really supposed to talk about. You're trying to think it through them from entirely different angles and come up with novel solutions yeah, like, what that if are not had, simply I was, like, take thinking, back America. Like, yeah. what if what yeah. if Calexit happens, but we get someone like DCR, Cohen Rodriguez, and not Blackstone? Uh-huh. Right, well, and you know, you, Robert, have been... You've been... Um, I guess a part of what the the California National Party, not you, the Cal National pro- Party. They they actually blocked me the other day. Okay, but another Calexit organization. Yeah, you've been a proponent of Calexit. Maybe not the most you know vicious proponent of it online, but nevertheless a a, a fellow traveler. And I mean, I I always in our conversation I always say like, why why even bother if this happened? You know, the California would just be led by you know not. Not even like a Bernie Sanders, but like a Dave Cohen Rodriguez. I think it very well. I mean, I hate to say it, but if it were to happen this year prematurely, that could very well happen. Right. But uh, I I think so, too, which is why I've never been that invested in CalExit. However, I think that on your substack, you're trying to think through, you're trying to kind of adopt politics for California. an alternative paradigm for California. So politics tailored specifically to the needs and interests uh, of of uh, of Californians because the Democrats and Republicans are our California party. So that I do advocate for, but I don't know if uh, if Calexit Calexit is too much of a too much of a gamble. The chance of it actually happening are fairly slim. And if it does happen, well I did this I had a show with Lewis Mar- Lewis Marinelli who uh the co-founder who quit collects it and mm-hmm. uh part of the reasons like he left so i think like the worst elements of the democratic party and and woke types would seize power i don't would, think yeah there's no guarantee and, it would be a it would be a positive with endeavor. regard to california out of curiosity have either of you read the stakes by michael anton I haven't read it so, yet, but I mean to. Have you? Yeah, read it? I, Michael Anton being another uh, California native, though he doesn't live there now. But have you read it, Robert? No, I have not. So interestingly enough, I was reading it right before I picked up Vapor Island, and the first fifty to seventy pages, he, uh, a native of California, Michael Anton, uses California as a case study for where the West is headed. And he posits that everything that is wrong with California is a uh, kind of a uh, future vision of what will be wrong with America writ large and the West writ large. So crumbling infrastructure, crippling bureaucracy. Oh, yeah, I think I think I may I don't mean to to brag but i think i may i may have said the exact same point a decade uh, ago and and so if you can solve yeah, the no. california problem <laughs> yeah. well you could solve you know the, the problem of the west actually first of all yeah no, it, it, that I'll, i know that i do want to read the stakes by michael anton um and i think you know robert to, to go down memory lane yet again i think on the first show i ever did on your podcast which was just about me and whatever blog i had at the time 
Um, I kind of, we talked a bit about California and I, I think it's a JG Ballard quote. And that's also apropos for, for our podcast. Cause Ballard is a writer of fiction, um, who said that the future of the West was going to be the Californication. Actually, no, he didn't. He, he said the Californization of everything. And then we called it the Californication because we were also talking about the show, but yeah, the Californication of everything, shall we say? So that is, um, it is. It is. Uh, I think it's true. It's. It's a well tried. It's. It's. It's a point that that many people have made, and, and that I think is accurate. In California, again, it's a younger, you know, corner of civilization. Yeah, the stuff it does. That happens here. It does kind of like that's why. Good, that's why I don't think Calexit would struggle to work because it's kind of duras. It is kind of deracinated and rootless. It doesn't have a gra- uh, grounded, rooted identity. That's why I don't think. Uh, I don't think it's going to work. And going to ask Robert, Robert, are you going to run? Are you going to run for governor of California, Robert? <laughs> okay, so the deadline to file to challenge Newsom is in March. So there's no way I'm making that, and I don't want to pay <laughs> several thousand and go out and get all the signatures. But I would consider, and I also do feel it's a bit premature. I want to work on more building up a parity. I will work up on building up a new political paradigm but i think because of that reason because california is the future of america like the person who can propose policy to fix california can fix america and tailoring political solutions to california for those reasons uh who knows who knows what i'll do in the future who knows next election cycle but uh i i can't really comment on that and i'll just give my final pitch uh, Vaporfornia, it's available. Uh, there's a link. There's a link, but on Lulu Publishing, so it's uh, self-published. And uh, my pitch is that it's obviously if you're so if you're easily offended, it's not for you. But if you enjoy if you enjoy dark comedy, the the the, the dramatized situational humor is for you. If you enjoy the the visual, geographic, and aesthetic descriptions. It's for you if you're interested in specifically in California issues. It's for you. And also mm-hmm. if you enjoy my political articles on Substack and would, would enjoy uh, enjoy the enjoy experiencing the political themes, but in an entertaining uh, fiction novel and that, and that narrative, then it's for you. So that's, that's my pitch. Go ahead and check it out uh, on Lulu Publishing. And I got to say, yep, uh, it's we'll been learn. a great show. Thank you so much, Matt Pegas, and also Dan Baltimore. Thank you, Robert. Yeah, hundred percent, Robert. We'll we'll plaster that link, um, you know, wherever we post this show. Um, and uh, not to co-opt the end here, but I, I, you know, we've talked about some pretty heady topics here. But I really want to say, you know, Vaporfornia is is a very fun and quick book to not quick, but it's it's, it's actually quite quite long. It's quite a it's quite a. Um, I think it's about eighty thousand. Was it eighty thousand words or or less? I, I don't forget. remember the words, but it's about two forty five. It's longer than my book. Let's put it that. It is uh it's a breeze to read. It's very fun. If you see the cover, it's kind of got this cartoonish vibe. Um, the artist is Mark Villard. So I'll yeah, he did vapor. Him. Yeah, Journey um, to Vapor Island too. Mark Villard. Yeah, that comic style matches the tone. It's very funny. Um, you know, I, I write about this in my uh, my blog post as well. Um, there's just so many great little elements here. You know, there's a I'm just going to read, you know, there's an emotional night in a neon 80s dance club on the Santa Cruz boardwalk. 
a, a vision of life in the geriatric sprawl of Modesto, California. That's uh, a lot closer to American History X than American Graffiti. Um, you know, there's a freak out in a super Walmart and abduction near Yosemite National Park. And climactically, and we actually didn't talk about this that much, but maybe it's okay because we don't want to give spoilers. Climactically, there is a Hollywood extravaganza produced by the execrable Ari Meshel, who we spoke about earlier. Oh, yeah, um, and then you could also say readers. it's like a more, it's a more sick, twisted version of Sam, Sam Hyde's Million Dollar Extreme. Capitalizing right, it's upon sort of like, uh, It's sort of like that. Capitalizing upon incel culture and sort of just like in this moment in Mulholland Drive that actually BAP of all people talks about all the time where you have the Justin Theroux character saying, uh, this is the girl, and sort of they pick this person to be the star of their show. Our, uh, our sort of incel, down-on-his-luck protagonist, Max, uh, becomes the, uh, the highlight of, of Hollywood extravaganza that is and made how to... they select how they select him, uh, I, won't, I, won't, I won't give that away, but they, choo- they, do, they, do, choose, they do choose him to be, to be their, their it guy for their project. Exactly. They they have they have an ulterior motive, and um, yeah, basically, I just want to say that the book starts very introspective. It, it, we delves into some of these issues, and you know, it's it's emotional in parts. But by the end, um, you are in for quite a uh, quite an extravaganza, and that's pretty much my my final word on the matter. Uh, Dan, I mean, no worries if not. But do you it, have any? Anything it made me laugh out loud, <laughs> and not every book does that. Actually, very few do. So it has that to recommend it. It uh, is a sort of travelogue of California. And uh, as someone who is uh, relatively ill-traveled in California, it's, uh, it's fun to read, to kind of see the world through Max's eyes. Yeah, like, uh, yeah, just sort of like how, have you ever seen like the old Seinfeld episodes? Kramer would give his reality show, someday I would actually like to, to be a tour guide and give Vaporfornia tours. Yeah. Or kind of like how yes. we have Papagon on the show. I don't know if Papagon right. would approve of... I don't know if he would approve of the project or not, but he's giving like Larry David tours, gubernatorial candidate. Yeah, like some, David someday LA, actually yeah. would like to give Vaporfornia tours in LA, which would actually... In, in LA or the Barrier or the whole state, including the Sierra part, Modesto part, that might be a bit hard. Though the fictional locations... In Beverly Hills or or Meshel Studio or the or the Beverly Experience, that part might be a bit tricky. Well, that part right. I know, well, I know all. I'll give the I'll give the I'll give the tour. People taking the tour will give them uh, VR headsets. Exactly. Well, that that's way. the alternative. You know, if you know, okay. So there's two there's two possibilities here. One is Robert that that you get elected governor of California. Your book sells a zillion copies. By that point, new right is uh, as popular as Joe Rogan. Yeah, let's, let's have that, that happen, money and clout, We could make the <laughs> Let's have that happen. The alternative is we go, uh, you know, the, we talked about earlier the negative and the positive side of the vapor. The alternative is that we go the negative side of the vapor and the whole thing is uh, VR masturbation. Whether whether we find ourselves, um, you know, making our dreams into a glorious reality or um, masturbating uh, behind <laughs> VR headsets, that, that reality... That reality is not yet um, solidified. Uh, we have time. We have time to to manifest our visions. You know, it's it's an indeterminacy. Um, but let's uh, let's go forth. Yeah, yeah, great <laughs> show, guys. Uh, again, uh, thank you so much. Take care and check out 
Vaporfornia and Lulu Publishing. Thanks, Robert. Yes, sir. All right. Bye. Take care. Bye.